Welcome back to another episode of That's Business. Today's guest, James Bucciolato, is a PhD criminologist and faculty member in the Irvin D. Reed Honors College at Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan. He also taught in the Department of Criminology and Criminal Justice at Northern Arizona University. His work appears in peer-reviewed journals, crime anthologies, and national news websites. His book, Early Organized Crime in Detroit, Vice, Corruption, and the Rise of the Mafia, explores Detroit's first half of the 20th century and includes rarely published images from that era. James is a certified gang specialist with the National Gang Crime Research Center in Chicago, Illinois. He also co-hosts the popular true crime podcast, Original Gangsters. James, thank you so much for agreeing to this. I'm excited for this conversation. Are we related? And that was the conversation (laughs) we started this phone call with is we know we're related. We've been uh, working on this for a few years, so we have to connect the dots and maybe we'll have an update when this episode goes out. But (laughs) I want to start with how did you get... How did you get involved in this whole true crime world and being like such a big part of it? Well, I mean, growing up in the Detroit area on the east side, you know, I grew up around mostly other working class Italian-American guys. And I think like a lot of teenagers from my generation or even younger than teenagers, we were obsessed with movies like The Godfather and Godfather 2 and Goodfellas. And so we were really interested in, in it from a popular culture perspective. And then we, you know, we would listen to gangster rap. And so... I think like a lot of young people, we romanticized that, you know, existence. And I'm not saying that was right, but that's what we did. But then I would also hear stories from some of the, uh, some of our, you know, relatives about, you know, when they say, oh, you like the Godfather movie, you know, you know, our family has some history in that. So it was really intriguing for me. And I would read true crime books about the mafia. And every once in a while, I would see our last name and I would be, boy, like I remember aunt so-and-so or, you know, Uncle so-and-so telling me that there were some connections here to the real world of the mafia. I always, you know, thought about that and found that intriguing, but I didn't really go much further with that. And then when I was studying the social sciences and eventually would go on to get my master's and PhD and wanted to be a criminologist, I published some things in academic journals about street gangs and outlaws, American outlaws, like John Dillinger, Pretty Boy Floyd. Billy the Kid. So I was interested in crime, but always in the back of my mind, I wanted to go back and revisit and use my skills that I had developed as a social scientist and then go back and like, no, I really want to go back and sort this out. All those stories I heard from when I was a kid about our family, I really want to sort that out. And there wasn't enough to write a whole book about our family. And by the way, I thought, you know, if it's just about the Bucciolatos, I'm not sure how many other people would be interested in it. Probably you and I and all <laughs> other, you know. But, uh, our families, right. Right, right. With all due respect to our family, I'm not sure how many other people would be interested in it. So I, I decided I need to tell a larger story about organized crime in Detroit during the early 1900s in general, prohibition, you know, corruption, things like that. And then just weave our family history into it, into the larger narrative. And that's what I did. So, and then from there, you know, I've just become just a specialist on just the Italian mafia in general and and street gangs. And, you know, I've researched drug cartels, outlaw bikers. So anything really, my specializations are gangs and organized crimes or anything in that area is, uh, you know, I'm pretty comfortable with terms of researching or teaching, talking about. And something I found when I was going through your podcast and watching your YouTube that you guys produce on it as well is you, what was the episode? It was about gangs in the military or other facets of people I just like never thought about. So what are some of those other 
I mean, I don't want to sound dumb and say like, where are other facets of gangs around? But gangs in the military, how did that come to be? Like, that just was wildly interesting to me. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, that's one of our more popular episodes right now for the audio. We have an audio and video version, but for the audio version, that's in our top five downloads right now. And the uh, guest that we had on, Carter Smith, I met him in Chicago when I was doing my uh, certification as a gang specialist at the National Gang Crime Research Center. And he was one of the professors who was teaching these seminars on gangs in the military. He was a U.S. Army investigator. And so I was really struck by that in a similar way that you're describing. I hadn't thought of that, and I found it really compelling. And I always wanted to continue with that in some regard. So I included it as a lesson plan in my course on gangs and organized crime. But I, I wanted to talk about it publicly if, you know, I could figure out a way. So I communicated with Carter. He's a professor in Tennessee criminal justice professor. And I asked him to come on our podcast and talk about that because I agree, it's something that a lot of people haven't thought about. So when I was in Arizona teaching at NEU, I was doing some field research in San Diego. You know, San Diego is not far from Arizona. And I met with some people in the San Diego Police Department in the gang unit, and then also some U.S. Navy investigators. And I asked what was going on with the gang situation in San Diego. And they both converged on this point that they had a real concern about outlaw biker members who were in the U.S. Marines. There was evidence that they were taking weapons from the armory and, and selling them to the cartels because, you know, obviously San Diego, it's right on the border. You've got the, you know, cartels are very active there. So I mean, there's like national security implications for that. And so I found this very interesting and I didn't want to pursue it enough to actually write something and publish something in a journal article, which by the way, probably not very many people would end up reading, <laughs> just a few other academics. So <laughs> I wanted to like make this more of a popular story. You know, how can, you know, I wanted other people to find out about this, not just other academics reading it. So I figured let's get, you know, Carter on and talk about it on the podcast. So and that's what we did. So thanks for listening to that. No, it's, it's very interesting. And it's, I love the podcast. It's just interesting. It just makes you think about other things. And I've loved it. Yeah, thank you. What is a certified gang specialist that you were just talking about? Because I had never heard it till I had met you. But I know, obviously, you said go through courses and everything. But what does that entail? And what does that mean? Um, so good question. No one's ever asked me that before. So, you know, I have, I have, you know, a PhD. So it's just additional training on that because I wanted to get more immersed in like these subspecializations of gangs and organized crime. So the National Gang Crime Research Center has training for the other people that were there. There were other academics. There were people in law enforcement. A lot of people in law enforcement undergo this training so that if they are going to be like on the gang unit for their local police department or state police or something like that, they will undergo this training. Journalists, social workers. So anyone who is really interested in this from they want to know even more about gangs and organized crime, either as practitioner, like someone in law enforcement or a social worker, or someone who's just studying these things, like a criminologist or a journalist. Either way, you can undergo this training. And, you know, it's intensive. You go to Chicago and you take courses, you know, similar to like a graduate program. Although there's no homework, which is a lot better than <laughs> graduate school. Nice. We love that. <laughs> right. So if you just check in and you're present and, you know, everyone's a professional there. So it's not like anyone's, you know, it's, it's a lot of time and resources to get there. So it's not like anyone's going to go there and just, you know, check out. So everyone's pretty serious there. And uh, you meet a lot of cool people. I networked with other 
academics, other people in law enforcement that are good contacts for me with my research. And there's different specializations depending on what you're interested in. You can take like different coursework. I'm trying to think some of the specializations were like, like if you wanted to know more about like the linguistics of gangs. So like if you were going to be a cop or a social worker, it's probably important that you understand like translating the graffiti and the signing. So like gang signs, oh. you know, they make, you know, gangs use different elaborate ways they call stacking, you know, with their, with their hands and fingers and gestures. And so there's actually kind of like a science to that and like decoding that. And if you're going to be a prison guard or a cop or a social worker, you might want to know that. And I, you know, I'm not that interested in that. And it's kind of interesting. My students always ask me about that. They want to know, what does this mean? What does that sign mean? What is that graffiti? And I'm always like, of all the questions, that's the only thing that I haven't studied and that I don't, I don't find as interesting. And of course, that's right away, all my students, what does this mean? What does that mean? I'm like, I don't know. I, I didn't specialize in that. I specialized in the organized crime aspect of, of gangs, not like decoding and deciphering the hand gestures and the graffiti and things like that. So, but that was one thing. There's another gangs in the media I remember was a specialization. I can't remember all the other specializations, but my focus was on organized crime. So I was studying like street gangs and outlaw biker groups and their involvement in narcotics trafficking and armed robbery and human trafficking. So, you know, there's different aspects you can study with gangs. So some of the coursework was like uh, intervention, suppression, like how do you keep kids out of gangs? But again, that's more appropriate for, I think, parole officers, social workers. Uh, you know, I'm a theoretical criminologist, so I was more interested in studying what kinds of crimes are they involved in? Are they organized crime? So I don't know if that answers the question, but that's just what I'm thinking off the top of my head about that experience. No, that was awesome. Now, of course, I have to ask, there's got to be a favorite or most interesting true crime story for you. What is that? The Bucciolato family <laughs> history is, is the, you <laughs> know, what's, family. What, yeah, that's what's most interesting to me and connecting those dots. But I'll use something that's more universal and accessible, especially to people in the Detroit area was throughout this research, I developed contacts with former uh, federal prosecutors and, and FBI agents and people that investigated the disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa, like from the beginning, from 1975 through the 80s. And that's one of America's you know, greatest unsolved mysteries. And I've developed a reputation as a Hoffa expert. I've appeared on, I don't know if I've ever told you this, but I, I've appeared on like documentaries for the History Channel and Travel Channel and Vice and, and other networks talking about the Hoffa disappearance. And based on talking to these contacts in law enforcement and also some, some underworld uh, sources, I'm very confident. I can't, I admit I can't prove it in a forensic sense, but I'm very confident that Jimmy Hoffa was incinerated in the Detroit area almost immediately after he was murdered. I think he was taken to, in all likelihood, central sanitation in Hamtramck. And his body was incinerated probably within hours of his execution. So, I, you know, that's probably one of the most, I would say, relevant <laughs> true crime stories, the most yeah. you know, that, that I think a lot of other people would find interesting. No, it is interesting. And I love on the news every so years, they're like, oh, we have a lead. He, his body's here. And we're like, all right, let's just entertain this for a little bit. And it's, of course, nothing ever comes up, but. No, I was going to ask you about Hoffa. So that was perfect that you already answered that. So that's awesome. Now, of course, with all these stories, 
Yeah, I was just going to say, sorry to interrupt. I was just going to say our, the episode we just dropped this week is about the Hoffa dig in New Jersey. And so this is just to your point. They just dug a few weeks or it might have been a month ago at this point looking for his body in New Jersey. And I even said on our podcast episode, I said, you know, I'm not trying to be snarky, but I told you so. I had said on the podcast, like, you could keep on digging. <laughs> you could dig for You're not going to find them. You're right? not going to find them. You know, the History Channel and these other networks that have contacted me as a consultant, and I'm happy to do it. It's fun to do. I think you fly me out to Los Angeles and, you know, it's fun. But I always tell them, you know, I know you're disappointed, but because they want me to tell them, where is he at? And I'm like, listen, if the FBI has spent 50 years or whatever, and they can't find him, you think I'm going to, I can fly out to LA and tell you where to go dig and find him? Like, he's not around. He's, he's gone. I'm very confident that he was, he was incinerated. And it's, it's not just something I made up. I mean, this is based on, you know, really good sources, multiple sources who are close to that situation. So I agree with you, like, hear about these digs. And I just, I mean, I guess the have an obligation if the source is good, but it seems like a lot of the time a waste of taxpayers' money, quite frankly, to dig because I don't think they're going to find them. Right. Do you often get asked, I mean, Vice, all these other networks that you've been a part of, do you often get asked the same questions and does it feel like, oh, here we go again? Or do they kind of, do they switch them up on you when you do interviews? Yeah, I guess it depends on like the one that I recently did with the History Channel. I think this show is called America's greatest mysteries. It's hosted by Lawrence Fishburne. It's pretty cool to be affiliated with that. You know, that that was a fun experience because they were really open-minded about hearing what I had to say in my interpretation of what happened. I've done some other uh, versions of this where they, they really were leaning toward one particular in- interpretation. And it's not the interpretation that I subscribe to. And they really pushed me during the interview okay, but can you just describe that? And I'm like, okay, but you know that I don't believe that. They're like, yeah, but just so we have, so we can have it on file. And and I felt that when the episode ran, I thought it was a little bit misleading. I, I felt like someone could watch that and come a, away with the impression that that's what I believe. Not necessarily I'm just describing right. what's an alternative theory, but that that's what I believe. You know, we were talking about editing before that before the recording. So, you know, Mm -hmm. editing, you could go back and edit things. And I was a little disappointed by that. But I, at the end of the day, I thought, you know what, like most people are watching these documentaries. It's just for entertainment. I highly doubt anyone's taking notes and, oh, Bucciolato said this, and we're going to hold him accountable for this. And then I'll have to defend myself. (laughs) So I thought, whatever, because my colleague, they did the same thing. And he was, he was really bent out of shape. I mean, he was really pissed off that it made it look like this is what he was arguing for. And I just, I was disappointed, but I thought, well, whenever I learned my lesson. So, you know, now when I do other versions of this, I just want to make sure they know that, you know, I told the History Channel, like, I want to make sure that there's no misinterpretations here. When you're done editing this, I want it to be clear that I could describe different theories, but this is the one that I subscribe to. And, and they did a pretty good job, I think. Well, I mean, it's a documentary, too. Like, you're ideally wanting to get the facts. So why would you not want your experts to give their true examples of what you want? That's a whole other podcast we could do on that. But that's frustrating. But OK. Now, with all these stories, of course, do any of them ever 
I mean, obviously learning about your own family or our own family, I should say, are any of them hard to like compartmentalize and just like not affect your personal life? Or are you pretty good about like, this is in the past, this is current or how's that work for you personally? Well, that's a great, that's a really great question. Interesting question. Thank you for asking. I, I will say that when I was researching our family history for my book, you know, it's one thing to read about all these gangsters killing each other. And, and I, I hate to sound insensitive, but yeah, I didn't know these people and I'm reading about it and it's just fascinating to me. Right. But when I started reading about people with our last name being killed, all of a sudden they'd be like, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute now. This is, this is a little different as opposed to, you know, people, names I'd maybe never even heard of. And even more specific, I have documents about the murder of my great-grandfather in 1917. And it's very detailed how many times he was shot, his last moments, his mm-hmm. la- the last words he said, because there were witnesses, you know, and the, the emergency people arrived and he was still alive at that moment. And I admit, like, I was choked up. I mean, the, the one thing that really struck me was he was getting on the streetcar and he had his lunch with him and said, you know, when they shot him, he dropped his lunch. And just that little like human detail, like humanistic detail. I mean, anybody can bring, we all, you don't have to be mafia. Anybody can bring their lunch, put them on a streetcar. And right. so it was a very like humanistic, you know, like where I, I could, we could all relate to that. And so all of a sudden it wasn't about like mafia history. It was about, this is my grandfather's father. Like I, I remember my grandfather. He grew up without a father. My grandfather's only two years old when my great grandfather was, <gasps> was executed, oh assassinated. So from that perspective, and then, you know, reading about the other wives who grew up without, you know, their husbands that, you know, they were widows at a young age and their children grew up without fathers that, you know, there's a lot of our relatives in this area. There were three Bucciolatos killed in that same period. And so all of those children, including my grandfather, aunts and uncles and others grew up without a father and hearing about from the old timers, how the, the widows struggled and it just put a much more humanistic like texture to it because I don't think about those things when I research other, when I'm researching drug cartels and, and it's very violent, right? This world is very violent, street gangs. Yes. But I'm looking at it from a very academic perspective. And this was the first time that it really hit me. Like these are all real people. Like, and really like in a way, this is when you start de-romanticizing it. And I admit since I've become an expert and a specialist on these things, as much as I fetishize the Godfather movies and Scarface and Sopranos, <laughs> like I admit, like the more I do this, the longer I've done this, I find that it's more difficult for me to enjoy those films because, you know, I finally started to really appreciate the human toll, right? This is like really tragic. I mean, the movies are fun to watch, but like you're really talking about people that are suffering and families that have suffered because this world is very violent, whether it's the mafia or these other groups, it's very violent. And so, yeah, it was difficult, especially reading about our family, especially my great grandfather, to know that he suffered greatly in his last moments. And I get like you can get into these ethical and moral conversations about, well, you know, if you get involved in the mafia, what the fuck do you think is going to happen? Like you could very well, you could get killed. And and like, and so I get that, but I, I'm, I'm not like, to me, that's not useful right now. I have to like a hundred years later to go back and judge and say, well, shame on you for getting involved in that in the first place, because I think things are complicated. I don't think, not to go down this rabbit hole, but I think a lot of them, especially with our relatives, early 1900s, I would not say that they were gangsters. The evolution of the mafia, if people, if they look at my book, I try to talk about that. 
the mafia then is not the mafia we think of as in terms of now. There, there's definitely some overlap. And those guys back then were, you know, they're selling booze and gambling. And I'm not saying that they were that they were that they were Boy Scouts, but a lot of it had to do with blood feuds going back to Sicily, like blood feuds with other families. And so I'm not sure that it's useful to just say, oh, well, why were you, why were these guys thugs and gangsters and they joined the mafia? I think what the relatives were talking about, first of all, I'm not sure they had a choice. Things were different. Like you were defending your family's honor. You were defending your property and your holdings and you were competing with other families in Sicily. And then someone kills someone from another family and then they take revenge and then there's retaliation. And then some of those relatives from each side migrate to the United States. Well, guess what? They were feuding and didn't like each other in Sicily. Now they don't like each other still in Detroit, in New York. And uh, the one analogy that I use in many ways is in some ways it reminds you like the Hatfields and the McCoys. Like you hear about stories of like, and I don't know if this is uh, politically correct, but like hillbillies you think of like in the, um, you know, in the South, like these families have these blood feuds. So I don't think it's useful to just judge and say, oh, well, you shouldn't have been a gangster. To me, it's like, I think it's a lot more complicated than that. And these are guys who had wives and children. And, you know, it's sad. So, I mean, it's not always easy to disengage, especially when you have relatives that were part of this, you know. Right. And it's so interesting because I feel that there's so many podcasts out there and there's so many people that claim to be a true crime investigator, Not someone like you who obviously has multiple degrees, you're a certified gang specialist, everything like that. Do you think it's become too congested or saturated? Or what are your thoughts on all of these, you know, self-proclaimed true crime experts out there? Yeah, that's a thank you for asking that, too. (laughs) I I always tread carefully (laughs) here because I don't mean to sound like a snob or a credentialist, but it is annoying to me sometimes, especially when I see that just any Tom, Dick and Harry can put out a video cast on YouTube <laughs> and talk about, you know, something that I've spent years studying and developing contacts. And, you know, in some cases with my gang research, you know, spending time with some rather unsavory individuals <laughs> on the streets, you know, and putting yourself in some uncomfortable situations to become an expert so that you can write about these things and talk about these things in an intelligent way. Not that I know everything, but far from it. I'm always learning, but I'm going to be honest with you. It's a little bit annoying to me when I see like just some random dude who basically reads from Wikipedia about gangsters and they're getting a lot more downloads or getting a lot more views than we are on our podcast. And in our podcast, you know, I'm an academic. My colleague is an investigative reporter. And so we've both put a lot of blood, sweat and tears into our research over the years to become people that are qualified to talk about these things. And so it is annoying to me. I mean, I think it's um, it's complicated. I mean, in some ways, like multimedia, and this is very liberating and democratizing. So, for example, like you with your podcast, me with my podcast, under the old media model, we probably wouldn't even be doing this. You wouldn't have your opportunity. I wouldn't have my opportunity. So in some ways, I have to acknowledge that. Like, yes, I get it. In some ways, this is very good, this landscape where it gives, you know, other people with opportunities like you and me to talk about these things. But at the same time, I I hope that people that consume these podcasts do some vetting and like, okay, like maybe this guy really doesn't have as much to say because they've never studied these things. They never studied. They're not doing field research. 
and they're just a person talking about it as opposed to people that are experts. And I, and I get it. You still want it to be entertaining when you're consuming these things. So, you know, we try not to make it too dry. We try to make it entertaining. But at the same time, I think there's a little bit more gravitas, if you will, or <laughs> validity to what we're talking about as people that have studied these things, as opposed to just just random people out there that have true crime podcasts, because I agree with you. I mean, it seems like every Tom, Dick and Harry out there has a true crime podcast. And when you're competing with them, it does get frustrating sometimes. I won't lie. Right. What is a good way to see if it's over-dramatized or if it's just the facts? Wikipedia sounds like that'd be a good one to look up Wikipedia if they're reading from Wikipedia. But yeah, I, w- I would say do a little bit of research on the topic first. So like even just starting with like newspaper articles and, you know, Wiki is a good source in the sense that it can it can lead you to those newspaper articles. Like I, I would caution people from reading the wiki entry and then thinking, okay, that's what happened because right. we know that that misinformation there. But they will have, at least the better wiki entries will have, you know, notes at the end where you can click on a link to a newspaper article and just try to do a little bit of reading on your own, maybe a, a book about the topic. And then that way you have a little bit more knowledge so that when you're consuming the podcast, I think you'll be in a better position to be like, you know, that doesn't sound right. Uh, I'm not sure about this. So I'm going to, uh, you know, maybe try to find a different one. And, uh, but I mean, I guess, I guess it can go the other way. You can sample a podcast and maybe that piques your interest. And then you could go back and look at the newspaper articles or maybe read a book. But I, you know, I think trying to look at multiple sources about the same topic is a good thing. But, you know, I don't know, again, you know, as an academic, that's what I do for a living. I don't know if that's your your average person there is like, well, God damn. I mean, how much time do you think I have to devote to this? <laughs> Your whole life. Come Listen on. Listen a podcast, read a book. Right? Yeah, right. it sounds like I'm giving a homework assignment. Like, so I get it. Like, sometimes like, look, I just want to relax and listen to a podcast and not have a homework assignment. So I, I get it. And that's fine. But I would say if you, if you want to know a little bit more and dig a little bit deeper, then I would consider, you know, consulting multiple sources. So, you know, it's just with your comfort level, how, how deep you want to get into it. Of course. And I, of course, can look and can speak on your podcast because I've listened to it multiple times. But give your plug on your podcast of you have such awesome guests that are well-known names on this. But talk to me on how you started your podcast and what is it like doing it week to week? Yeah, thank you. So we started with my colleague, Scott Bernstein, who's an investigative reporter and he's a friend of mine. He's in Detroit. And uh, Roberto Beauchene, who is uh, an on-air personality at 97.1, which is a radio station here in Detroit, sports radio, and he's interested in true crime. And so the three of us talked about starting a podcast because of what we just talked about. You know, like it's accessible now. You can, you know, you don't have to be a broadcaster per se to have a podcast. So we wanted to talk about, you know, gangs, organized crime, things like that. And because Roberto works at the radio station. We had access to a studio and equipment and things like that. So we just started doing it. And then because of my research and Scott's reporting, we have a network in place that we can tap into where we can, you know, thank you for the compliment about the guest, where we can contact someone in the DEA or FBI or a federal prosecutor, a U.S. attorney or someone and say, hey, would you come on our podcast and talk to us? And in other cases, we've tapped into Underworld you know, sources. I mean, one one of my biggest gets, if you will, 
is I convinced Big Pete, who was the, used to be the, of the Outlaws Motorcycle Club in Chicago. Anybody Google him if you want to see Google images, look at this dude. He, he's a very imposing, <laughs> fearsome looking <laughs> dude. And I somehow convinced Big Pete to come on our podcast and talk about Outlaw Bikers. We had George Young on, who, if people remember the film Blow with Johnny Depp, Johnny Depp played George Young, who was a prolific narcotics trafficker. He worked with Pablo Escobar in the 70s and 80s. We had George Young in studio. R.I.P. George is, is no longer with us, but we had him in studio. So we've talked to mafia guys, African-American drug kingpins in Detroit, and we've had prominent journalists on the show, New York Times bestselling authors. So I appreciate you uh, pointing that out because I, I would say in terms of the quality of our podcast versus others, I think also we have access to a lot of impressive people and interesting people. And by the way, not every episode we have a guest. Quite often, it's just Scott and I, you know, we just talk about whatever issues. But when we can, we try to have some pretty good guests on. So thank you for noticing that. Oh, of course. Now, as we continue to wrap this up, do you have any parting words of wisdom for our listeners? I like to ask everyone this question that is extremely vague. <laughs> I mean, I think try to not sound too cliche, but, you know, I've always been a bit rogue <laughs> in the way that uh, I've approached things. And um, as you're wearing your misfit shirt. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So and I, this is this is my attire when I teach in the class, by the way. I love that. I wear rock T-shirts yes. to, to class. But I didn't start off that way. So, you know, sometimes you have to play the game. Like I tell my students and they're shocked. They said, you know, when I first was hired as a full-time faculty member, I rocked a suit and tie every day for like two or three years. Wow. And my students are blown away. They're like, I can't even visualize you in a suit and tie. And I said, well, yeah, because I wasn't the guy who I am now. Yet I didn't have the certification in, in, from Chicago, the gang specialist. I didn't have the articles out. I didn't write the book yet. I wasn't on the History Channel. I didn't have the podcast. So when you're starting off, sometimes you have to play the game. And if you can become accomplished and accomplish your goals and make the right contacts and earn the reputation of someone who produces and who's qualified and who's reliable, then you can start, <laughs> you can start, you create space for yourself to become more rogue and, and do things the way you would like to do it all along. So um, I've always been a bit rogue, but I would say, you know, you have to back that up though. You know, I would be cautious with that because you know, when I, I said I want to specialize in gangs and organized crime, you know, a lot of people were like, you'll never get a job. If you want to be a criminologist, you should specialize in like violent crimes. You know, everyone's interested in serial killers. You should do forensics, sexual violence, things like that. And these are all very important topics. I'm glad that there are other specialists out there. But that just wasn't, that's not what I was passionate about. I wanted to write about gangs and organized crime and talk about that. And, you know, people would say, well, there's no future in that. And I didn't listen to that. And I just said, I, I'm going to do things my way. If, you know, if you're not getting a book deal, you're not publishing academic journal articles, if you're not getting invited to the History Channel, things like that, you shouldn't be rogue just for rogue's <laughs> sake, rogue. if, that, if that makes sense. You know yes. what I mean? Don't just be a troublemaker just to do it or a rule breaker just to do it. You have to back it up. And I think early on, you, you play the game. And you fly under the radar. And then later on, you know, when you have the reputation, um, the credentials, then you can become more of a rule breaker. And that's the path that I followed. So, but everyone, you know, everyone has to find their own journey. You know, that 
that might not work for everyone. So, but that's just the way that I've, I followed that path is, you know, find something that you're passionate about and um, navigate through that. And maybe you have to play the game at first, then you have more flexibility later, but find something that you're passionate about. I can't imagine doing anything else. I mean, when I was younger, I worked landscaping, roofing. I worked at a record store. I worked at Target. I mean, I had a lot of, you know, these different kinds of jobs. And I knew that that's not what I wanted to do. And um, I wanted to be an academic. And you know, people would say, well, you know, this, the job market is really bad. And it is tough. I, I agree. It's, it's, it hasn't been easy. But I just knew that this was my passion. This is what I wanted to do. I mean, I hate to sound like cheesy here, but no. especially the stuff about our family. Like, I feel like I was meant to tell that story. Like, I, I feel like this was leading up to me becoming a specialist on crime and, and having these credentials because our family story needed to be told. And I, I'm the one to tell that story. So I, I'm glad that I stuck with it. It wasn't easy, but I'm glad that I stuck with it. So I don't know if that makes sense. I yes. feel like I was rambling, but. <laughs> Maybe that's a Bucciolato thing because I do that. <laughs> yeah, that. yeah, just free association. Right. Hopefully that makes sense to someone out there. It does. And then last but not least, where can listeners find you? Where is your podcast live? I see you have a website and everything, but where can people find you? Yeah, thank you. So my website is jbucciolato.com and you can find out more about me and some of my writings and appearances. It's just a website, but our podcast is called Original Gangsters. You can find us on Spotify, on Google Podcast, on iTunes, Apple Music. We're on pretty much anywhere, Amazon, anywhere, you know, you find popular podcasts. And then we have a YouTube channel now as well. So we don't have video versions of every episode, but we have video versions of some of our episodes and the ones that we do, we put up on our YouTube channel. So you can see us in action. And uh, again, it's Original Gangsters podcast. So if you just put a search on YouTube, I think you'll find it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This was, I learned a lot of great information and we'll have to, we'll do another episode where we, we figured out how we're related. So that'll be exciting, but thank you. Yeah, for sure. Let's follow up on that. I love that. Well, thank you again for listening to another episode of That's Business. If you're looking for a career change and you're not sure where to start, the Resume Rescue can help. Sure, there's no such thing as the perfect fit for everyone, but here at the Resume Rescue, we're on a mission to find the perfect solution for you. Whether it's changing careers, updating a resume, learning LinkedIn, or practicing interviewing, we have you covered. Find us online at theresumerescue.com and find all of our contact info in our show notes.